What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast, where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industry to learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez, and this is episode 14. We're joined today by Grant Saxena, who is a writer for Fat Nugs Magazine and the founder of the Ether Arcade. The Ether Arcade is a metaphysics blog and research laboratory. Find out more on A E T H E R Ether Arcade, A R C A D E.com, and find Fat Nugs at FatNugsMag.com. Enjoy the show. Grant, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for jumping on. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. Really excited to be here. I'm glad we could talk. I think I've uh, I've definitely fallen down a rabbit hole or two on your on your blogs there for Ether Arcade. There's a lot to there's a lot to take in there. Could could you give us and our listeners a little bit of background on how you got to Icarus eLearning and uh, Ether Arcade? Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the the reads and everything out there. Um, it was just kind of a couple years ago. I fell back into the rhythm of uh, trying to finish up my degrees and stuff like that. So I went back to school, um, finishing up a PhD. I picked up a um, first law degree from the United Kingdom along the way. And um, I just started kind of writing on this blog as sort of an outlet from the more like rigid and structured academic stuff that I was doing for the coursework. And um, it's a little bit easier to put out some of the theories and stuff like that more quickly in a more uh, digestible format and things like that. And I kind of uh, described my journey along the way of going into this uh, different legal system as a, an American student. Um, I, I took like 15 years off between my undergrad and then going back for my, um, my postgraduate stuff. So uh, it was just kind of this uh, this fun outlet that I was able to share some philosophy, um, some technology, some uh, creativity topics along the way, and um, I was luckily uh, was got picked up just through this brand new um, online platform called Icarus, which is more of the professorship that you mentioned uh, for a, a course on Lean Six Sigma with artificial intelligence and. Um, I think they're still recruiting and looking for teachers and things like that. So it's a brand new online course that can take uh, any of the classes and then translate them into pretty much any language that exists. So it's got a powerful algorithm to kind of, uh, you know, get out the the different manuscripts and things like that. But just a wide wow. variety of uh, PhDs and people from uh, you name it, they probably been at the different universities. So just a couple projects. I've got a laboratory that I work at now called Ether Arcade, which is kind of the um, where the blog is centered around. But I do uh, just different um, holistic experiments and things like that, which kind of lead into more of the maybe the cannabis discussion. But um, I see. So was it the was it the experimentation around metaphysics and things like that that kind of guided you towards cannabis or was cannabis always in the picture? as you were finishing school or uh, working on some of the other businesses that you've been a part of in the, in that hiatus between school? 
That's a good uh, question. How do the how do the two blend in there? I think uh, you know metaphysics is a kind of an interesting topic to try and define because it's sort of uh, kind of asks the underlying question of like why things exist, what's the basis of existence. You know, it's a very uh, kind of deep and sort of heavy topic to jump into sometimes. So it does help to. <laughs> like meditate sometimes after, you know, toking a little bit, I found, uh, I try and meditate and things like that a little bit on, on, um, <clears throat> you know, maybe the assistance of, uh, of a little bit of, um, ganja. But, uh, as far as, uh, for like school and things like that, it's sort of, um, I don't know, it's been a, just kind of an interesting, uh, intersection of, um, the play between, uh, some of my, some of my topics that go into um, Ether Arcade have to do with uh, veterans that are disabled. So uh, my background, uh, my undergraduate, I did in uh, West Point. So I graduated there right around when 9-11 happened. I served overseas as a lieutenant. I came back over and basically got out of the military as a captain. And so some of the metaphysical stuff that I try and look at, like for holistic therapies are kind of self, uh, self-experimented things, everything from uh, like listening to music that might help your mood get a little bit better, things that I've tried to do through my journey um, kind of congruently with like Veterans Affairs. But then I think there's also room in there to experiment with, uh, you know, plant-based holistic substances. Uh, it could be cannabis, could be psychedelics. You know, you want to be careful with that stuff, you know, under the guidance of maybe, uh, you know, somebody that's a little bit more, um, versed in that, you know, there's like retreats and stuff you could do before somebody just does it at home, you know, word to the, yeah, it's not caution. necessarily a self-treatment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind Something of thing. to well, be cautious of, but I think like on the spectrum of anything like that, you know, that was sort of birthed out of my own journey through like the regular healthcare system and then trying to figure out other things that worked for me along, along the way which, you know, right. cannabis does as a consumer. I've been doing that since I got out of the military and stuff like that. And then, yeah, honestly, through school and stuff like that, I was trying to, you know, balance things. Maybe, you know, don't uh, don't partake during class. I don't think you could do that. Or if it's online or whatever, <laughs> you know, there's rules to all this stuff. But, you know, trying to at least, like, decompress a little bit, like during the law school stuff, too. Anytime you're in school, it can be pretty... Uh, can be pretty, uh, you know, um, stressful. But then like when you're going through the law school stuff, a lot of the examples and the case studies that you have to read about can be pretty gruesome. So there's some of this stuff helps you to decompress a little bit or, uh, you know, uh, helps with, uh, dreams and stuff like that too. I was speaking clear the slate a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, before we get too far, thank you for the service to the country and your bravery, man. I definitely appreciate that. That's a, uh, not an, not an easy task. Um, so that's it. That and it's also time. not a, uh, not a simple thing to always re-enter society or to come back, um, from that experience. So I think spending time with the veteran, um, kind of veteran therapy and trying to help others in that approach is, um, is a virtuous act for sure. And, uh, and there's a lot, I think some of these substances could do for, uh, for those folks where we talk a lot about recreational use and, uh, you know, a lot of the societies having fun with these things, they have very, um, a very serious and real impact potentially on, um, on folks with PTSD or kind of heavy anxiety and things like that. That's really, I think, driving 
part of the industry, but can sometimes be forgotten for like all the branding and the, um, the packaging that gets put around everything kind of with our capitalist mindset over here. That means a lot, Rob. Yeah. That you've got the, um, just a uh, great insight there, you know, and personally too, just to, um, you know, hear that. I think a lot of, uh, <clears throat> the patients out there, you know, the, um, the veterans, like you say, and just beyond that, a lot of people that have been through traumatic things could be of, uh, you know, a lot more healing um, benefit from legalization and things like that, like we were talking about. Um, we chatted before, uh, there was a gentleman, uh, Dr. Uh, Hudson, and he's a PhD from a company called Backbone IQ. They do like software um, management and stuff like that for companies in the cannabis space. But they were just awarded one of the seven DEA licenses to um, conduct like tests on veterans with them, like giving them the cannabis and stuff like that to try and, uh, you know, bring maybe some more uh, relief to this demographic and things like that. So, but I really do appreciate that. I try and mesh a few of the different um, things that I'm doing as a semi-retired younger person to try and give back a little bit of, uh, you know, my own, you know, venture into this stuff and then how it could help the next uh, generations coming down the line. Right, right. The, um, the body of knowledge that is cannabis right now or the societal approach is like a cathedral, right? It's taken like generations already to build it and we still haven't really seen it for perhaps what it will become. <laughs> it's definitely, it's fast moving, but still it's going slow. If you look at, you know, its ability to go global or, you know, with other countries kind of starting to, to turn the light on for cannabis, it's, it's fast, but, um, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's taken a while from our, our perspectives. You're totally right with the speed of bureaucracy now, even with uh, some legalization, we've seen kind of the domino effect. A lot of different states are now uh, giving way, like Missouri, New York, uh, some other places that have uh, done things in the United States. But then overseas, you've got a lot of the international arena. I just got back from covering Spanabis, and people are talking yes. about, uh, you know, Germany. <laughs> the juggernaut out there that's like four four different events of a, a business convention and then like a championship growers cup and a scientific symposium they've got going and so there's a lot of uh germany's moving very quickly i i like their approach man they do they dove in fast and they are getting some checks and balances it seems from the eu or the un and and getting some guiding lights there but they're really they're really going in. I think after looking at the U.S. and Canada the last few years, there's a lot that can be said um, economically, why it could be valuable. Um, and I think they're, you know, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> they're smoking the grass. Oh, yeah. They're <laughs> so definitely uh, <clears throat> trying to be the progressive kind of um, spearheading the, the movements over there. I mean, there have been some other uh, shifts in um, trying to do some like social experiments from France and... Yes. I want to say yeah. Switzerland now has uh, maybe right. medical. Switzerland has experiments ongoing. They've had some some medical, and now folks will be, uh, some select few will be added to this social experiment to kind of measure the impact of legalization there. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a pretty good idea. It'd be like if, you know, instead of changing to Nevada recreational, they just tried it in 
in Vegas. I get, which is probably not a good example because there's not much <laughs> outside of Vegas. But imagine in California, they just tried it in San Diego first and then um, kind of measured the value. I think it's a good way to appease anyone that maybe uh, doesn't quite agree and try to show them the value a little slower as not everyone's like kind of worldview or backgrounds are ready to just green light cannabis on a, on a big scale. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a good point. You've got kind of just a, a different old world mentality versus the contemporary uh, proponents of change. And then as you move into some of the more interesting political arenas, um, it was at the UN level that they were trying to come back on the United States for having recreationally legalized in some states because it was against a 60s convention uh, arbitration that we signed into, right? I'm sure you know about this one. I don't, and I, I'm not quite certain what the intent was behind that one. We mentioned it on a few, on a few episodes here. I need to do some digging in there to learn, like what else was passed during that. But it was called the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs in 1961, and basically everyone that signed it agreed not to to schedule cannabis and other things below a Schedule Two. And different countries don't necessarily have a schedule. I forgot what Germany has, but they have a version of that kind of tiering substances. Um, and yeah, that's a, an interesting one because they're, they're kind of contractually bound to a 65-year-old agreement. Um, it could probably be argued that it's time for a revision um, <laughs> or if the right countries got together that it could be a, you know, a pen, amended or slightly changed Very to remove cannabis so. from that list. It could be, yeah, maybe put on the the docket and things like that. And, you know, as you're going through all the different, like, layers, um, when I was at the Emerald Conference uh, at the beginning of March last month and seeing all the different posters and things like that, uh, different experiments. One was from a doctor that was looking at um, benefits for, like, mental illness and things like that for dementia and things. Um, but again, trying to get access to these DEA licenses and then having to get a population of people that can commit to these experiments and, you know, to get some consistent results and report anything truthfully. (laughs) Yeah. It's really hard to, um, maybe hang your hat on those results, so to speak. And then if you're like you're talking about having a de-scheduling down, maybe that's the next, um, you know, realistically, that's probably what would happen before a full-up federal legalization. Although going back to some of the populations, it's unfortunate, I think, because some of the populations um, could benefit, you know, if there was a more uh, easier access to some of these, uh, like if veterans could get access through um, healthcare at Veterans Affairs or something and they'd pay for it or they could be part of studies and they didn't feel so um, ostracized by the stigma that sometimes is associated with uh, consumption, you know, which shouldn't be there. If you go to these events, I mean, you've got a room full of like at the Emerald Conference, a room full of most brilliant minds you could think of, you know, and it's like half of them are probably stoned there. I don't know, maybe (laughs) give it the speeches, but They've all done the intellectual legwork and whatever their their area of science is enough to present even. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it says something about a stigma or 
about, you know, the older like push, you know, that the reefer madness, right. And things like that. Like it's not too mad if it's a bunch of PhD scientists <laughs> that have been studying like, you know, plant chemical, uh, like chemical reactions and other things in biology. It's, uh, it starts to really get into the weeds literally. I totally agree with that. Yeah. It's kind of like the, um, the pendulum that swings a little bit between rational and irrational. And when you've got these blanket political, uh, you know, campaigns that have really maybe set up some populations, uh, you know, for detriment to their benefits of healthcare, then you've got the scientists that are now coming back with the logic and the research that shows that. And sometimes they just need a little bit better voice of like massaging the findings because it was almost like if you had a if you had a primer in chemistry 101, that would have been a good preface before going in there because some of the talks were like really engaging and really technical. Uh, they didn't stay surface level, huh? Yeah, Dove they in. were getting like, <laughs> I mean, they were showing the chemical compounds and the structures of different things. And like analysis was a big kind of elephant in the room uh, for a lot of the discussions and the poster topics, just because even if, you know, you're a consumer, like, you know, myself, for example, as a disabled veteran, when I go to places, I try and check out different um dispensaries and sometimes I'll go for brands that I'm a little bit more familiar with and things like that. But like recently I went into a pretty nice posh dispensary um, in San Diego and bought like a Rove product that said 93% THC, which was, I don't think that was correct, you know? And yeah, so that, that'd have to be extremely concentrated. Like <laughs> <that>. <laughs> and then you'd have to ask yourself, you know, if it was true, like you don't want that before you're going to go into like a social situation of, uh, covering, uh, you know, to talk to people or interviewing for, uh, the science, the science thing. So it's kind of, it gets into, um, the big discussion was the analysis and the reporting of different, um, terpene profiles. And then how does that affect the medical population that needs kind of a, um, like a prescription level consistency. Yeah. There's definitely a bridge there that hasn't been built yet, uh, between like connecting some of the, the nuances in the different cannabinoids, like the terpenes and esters and, and so on to actual therapeutic use where our medical approach I'm, and thankfully so, right? We don't want to prescribe things that we don't fully understand or that we're not confident in their uh, in their effects. And cannabis just makes that extremely difficult by itself, having so many of those compounds rolled into one uh, into one flower or one product if they're distilled or tinctured. Easier said than done. I mean, for we're sure. thankful for the scientists and for these labs and universities to start to dig into that. I think that if I were like a little bit younger, I would have gone deep into that side of, uh, of biology. Um, it, I was always very interested in the cure and, um, what can be done afterwards to kind of maximize the cannabinoids that you have, um, in the flower and how that profile changes over, over time, I think is pretty significant. And perhaps something even that could be talked about there as often the labeling shows what this product tested at before it was packaged but net then it aged two more weeks it was packaged it was shipped or sold and then aging again and by the time you actually get to it how how much of that label is still reality it's hard to hard to know 
Totally agreed on that. It's uh, another uh, big topic of just uh, kind of the, the labeling and um, like the players right now in the market that are trying to sell for profit. You know, the underlying kind of elephant in the room is that we've got a, uh, you know, we've got a medical industry and then we've got a business industry and it's like a supply and demand. And then as different, um, you know, uh, distributors or producers start to try and give in to maybe the, the demand that says that like an inflated THC ratio is going to sell more or somehow, you know, there's a fad that gets brought in for a minute. Then I think that that can sort of um, wear wear into the authenticity of what you know you're really trying to do with the, at least the medical population and things like that. So there was a lot right. of debate on that. There was a, um, another uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Anna Schwab, and she spent like four years on this. Uh, it's a really great study. I can send a link to. It uh, talks about the over. Um, percentages on labels and things like that and how that kind of uh yeah and i think there's even some like lawsuits shaken out right now in the like in michigan there was one and i think there might be something else going on in i want to say it was like arkansas or somewhere else in the south where basically the lab testing is not uh not reflecting reality and it's probably good to crack down because either the labs aren't being consistent or i've also heard that you know some cultivars and this is not what everyone does and it's not recommended but it would actually sprinkle some keef or like thc right on top of their flower sample so that the lab you know when they go to burn that in the gas chromatographer they can actually get a higher reading and that's not the true sample yeah There's a lot of nefarious actions uh, afoot and things that you mentioned, they happen. A lot of other things, uh, all the way up into including, and I heard this directly from industry players uh, that were exhibitors, you know, at the Emerald Conference. They would say that uh, people that worked for like the control board, some of them were just turning a blind eye. Some of them didn't want to even deal with shutting down some of the people. Some of them were taking bribes. Some of them were incompetent, you know. Still Every, the Wild West in a few yeah, of these locales. Like a myriad, <laughs> a total myriad of just different things that I was like, as an end-level consumer, I mean, coming from the background that I did, it was very much like rank and order, get in, get in file, you know, here, take this, that's what they give you. So when you walk in, and I've always had a medical license, I've had one now in a bunch of different states for probably like 13 years, including Nevada back when, you could have the license, but there were no dispensaries because they kept getting shut down by DEA and stuff like that. So, um, you know, but I've always tried, like, tried to be on that sort of like level of, um, you know, just get, you know, get the license and be on the up and up with it and things like that. And I think that's what pushes uh, sometimes people into the black market. Like my Uber driver yeah. was telling me about these uh, things called seshes. Have you heard about those uh, out in California? No, I don't think so. <clears throat> so they're kind of like, uh, just think of like a farmer's market for weed. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard of some markets like that in Northern Cali for some of the leg- legacy growers. Yeah. Um, that <laughs> yeah, sounds man. great, man. I, that'd be cool. You could walk around and and uh, check out the produce, get yeah, some fresh. Totally, like different <laughs> levels of, uh, you know, um, every level that you could think of, like uh, tomatoes versus, you know, cannabis uh synonym that 
is talked about a lot, you know. Um, yeah, that's the and, tomato model in action right there. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You could go in <laughs> and everything, kind of almost like at a dispensary where you have all the different tiers of it, but it's being brought straight from the farmers, and there isn't a lot of the uh, middleman sort of influence that can be sometimes uh, commodifying, to say the least. Sometimes it's got a, a positive. Sometimes, you know, like there's a dispensary. Um, I'll have to invite you to... Uh, sample some of these from the source out here they do pretty good deals for veterans and stuff and then they always let you round up to give a, like to a charity and sometimes that's like an animal right. shelter or they give it to the vfw and things like that and then there's other places that really want to um you know around town and stuff like that in vegas that really want to be more the almost entertainment when you're buying marijuana and they almost want to bring a different sort of taxation to the scheme yeah, model. again, commodifying because it's if it's entertainment, <laughs> you got to make money on that in Las Vegas. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's like usually, it's, like you said, one mo like Vegas isn't maybe the best model of everyone to like to use el elsewhere. But it shows it's not kinda, a great model city conversationally. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's it's got some good like you know to see what's going on there. Interestingly enough, like the prices yeah. and it's dropping like um, you know the uh, price per ounce or whatever, you know, it's kind of dropping across the board nationally. And you can see right. that in like Vegas big time around. Um, and that's definitely a contrast to from that, you know, the dispensary with veteran deals, uh, you know, offering like roundup abilities to give back to charities and, you know, trying to make an impact in the society that they're building their business versus the uh, entertainment style, like come here and spend money, welcome to Vegas kind of vibe. Um, dispensaries can operate well in, in that whole spectrum, but I think something closer to the former is probably the goal uh, in most locales and cities, but it's easy for me to say that and forget that I too was 21 years old and <laughs> and would have traveled to these cities and, and went ham, man, and bought, a, you know, bought all the the flower I could and concentrates and things like that to just try it all, man, and, and enjoy it, right? I think that's only maybe in in aging a little bit more and maturing, you get some of that wisdom or a few more uh, reasons maybe to experiment with moderation and uh, not not going so crazy off of the entertainment side of the cannabis industry as, as fun as that actually is. It's a, it's a very valid perspective. You bring up kind of the, um, the different demographics of consumers and who's being sort of marketed to at the different places. And um, when I was just hanging out in Spain uh, a couple weeks ago, it was uh, went to these kind of uh, what they call like social clubs. And they're like, yeah, that was in Barcelona that Emerald or that Spanibus took place. Yep, it was uh, right in Barcelona, kind of right outside at uh, one of the fairgrounds there. And um, it's an interesting setup in Spain because uh, marijuana is illegal to sell or use in commerce. Um, it's decriminalized for like personal at-home cultivation, but then they have these social clubs where you can kind of uh, go in basically and smoke weed. I mean, you become a member. You don't really buy weed from them, but um, the clubs themselves have to like grow their own flower or grow their own, make their own products for the for the members and different things like that. And so I think it makes it a little bit more. It's an interesting experience to go in, and you're kind of um, 
smoking in a more social fashion, looking at art, listening to music, talking to different people in different languages that are there versus like, um, cause I remember, cool, man. Yeah, I'm, I remember I'm picturing this like Star Wars cantina scene, but like a little more Spanish looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, there's a ton of them. There's like, uh, over 200 of them, you know, but probably like maybe the top two dozen are worth going to. And so each of them has mm. their own vibe. Like you said, there's this one I really like called Choco, which has the same vibe that you're talking about right there. It's just, it's so chill. It's so cool. Like the bud tenders were giving me like psychedelic guitarist rock on SoundCloud to like listen to and check out, which nice. I never had seen before. And, you know, then there's other places you can go to if you want a more like, um, if you want like a more larger vibe, there's other places that are called like one's called HQ, which is like a bigger one where they had some after parties from Spanibus at. And then, you know, there's other ones that are just more kind of intimate and local. They have different, different ranges of that, you know, because uh, like I remember coming to Vegas when I was young too, this is back. Weed wasn't legal and stuff like that, but you could drink, I mean, you could drink your face off and you know, but it's like, where were you going to go? I mean, you know, it's always kind of like uh, trying to find a bar or trying to find a club or something like that. And so, you know, maybe having right. more like these smoke lounges and stuff like that would be a nice thing to see around. Um, I think Vegas has like one, but other yeah, places. Yeah, it had similar vibes to that, or at least that's the intent. But consumption lounges have been like three steps to the side, one step backwards <laughs> the last year. It's been a little bit of a mess in the U.S., with each state trying to figure out consumption lounges, different folks trying to really assess the business models. Like, can consumption lounges be profitable or are they more, you know, community centers or, you know, places to gather, like you mentioned, with art and music? Um, I, I think that it's waiting on the laws with because of the compliance side in the U.S. It's difficult to, at least above board, provide that experience and anything else like to have a concert and um you know and a consumption lounge i think is the ultimate goal or to be able to like invite people in to an art gallery that doubles as a consumption lounge i feel almost all of the business models would need like something else like that other pillar outside of just selling you know cannabis but i will totally agree that you know traveling to new cities it can be hard sometimes to find where do you, I just went to a dispensary. Where do I, uh, you know, smoke this now? <laughs> right. And it kind of and, brings in the, yeah, totally. Like we were, we were saying about the, um, the underground market and in some yeah. places how it's almost thriving stronger. Um, like the seshes, uh, in California and then also kind of a step up from there, are these bodegas that are just like stores that set up. And once they eventually get found out, they just move. Right. Overnight. Whoever was running it is gone and that store is somewhere else. All right. Yeah. And they don't go far. They'll just go like right to the next city that's, you know, they have a different uh, police station and then they're <laughs> just not on the radar and they just set right back up. And I think I visited one of those in like San Pedro, LA, that was just kind of this, um, almost looked like it was a laundromat that they had, were converting or something like that. Or it was like another area that was off to the side of one of these um, yeah. places that just yeah. didn't. There are a lot like that, man. I've been to one in a, in LA, at least it was maybe three or four years ago. And it was when they were still cracking down on some licenses. 
many folks were trying to run shops that were just not licensed um, and just, yeah, doing the same thing. And I went there and it was in somebody's house <laughs> and they had a glass case like that you would see in a, in the shop, small one, but setting in the kitchen in front of the counter, you know, and a guy leaning against the stove with the cash register behind him, just weighing it out deli style. I, I went there with a friend and we got out of it. We left the dispensary in quotes and I was like, this was definitely not a licensed experience. Yeah. <laughs> you could tell because the uh, Ziploc baggie we left with as well. <laughs> you had a straight like moon, straight up like moonshiners vibe to it, sounds like. And uh... Yeah, they had even a, almost a consumption lounge. They were like, you're welcome to hang out here. And they like poked our head in this room, kind of dark and, you know, had like a rundown couch in the corner. It's like, hey, we, we probably won't <laughs> hang out here, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> There's places like that, I'm sure, that are now, <clears throat> you know, popped up. Uh, in every place that's got new regulations for legalization, I'm sure there's kind of some um, different events and things like that that go on. Or, oh, yeah. Um, the underbelly is still going strong <laughs> if, you, yeah, if you find it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's an underground scene. People always have renegade parties, house parties. I used to DJ and stuff like that and be involved with uh, like some the warehouse events. Scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it was always, uh, so, I mean, it's always kind of two things at once. Like you mentioned, the, um, the lounge would almost have to have another business facet to it to kind of, but it would have to be mobile that could, um, go through like people bringing paintings and stuff in, but that's still, it's still a little bit of a hard sell. I mean, even at this place in Spain, it's like, it was a great spot, but I mean, who's going to spend like maybe $2,000 on a painting right there to have it shipped back. Maybe some people that are local, maybe some real rich people. I mean, they have some really big murals there. Um, uh, so it, it was, it was hard to see that someone would actually go to that gallery to purchase art rather than just to consume and observe or experience the art. Right. Right. I mean, and, um, and that was, uh, you know, part of their, uh, they have like events and stuff like that. Part of, I think their, um, thing getting ready for Spanibus was to have a little bit more of the creme de la creme stuff, but you make a good point about having kind of a dual nature to these, uh, businesses and things like that. Cause on the flip side, right. If you were to have like, let's say just a gallery opening and then you had people that were there, um, smoking weed or drinking and things like that you'd have to go through the appropriate uh channels to get all your liquor licenses or have rented out a venue that would already have a liquor license mm -hmm. and then it would all be copacetic you know versus um maybe if you had one of these lounges or something like that it could be rented out you know yeah consumption a, venue rather or the consumption or venue people could use for yeah different different things like i was talking i was talking with the owner of choco about uh like a, like a smoke and paint, if you've ever seen those. Yeah, those that definitely kind of sounds like a good popular. combination to get get down into some something creative and chill for a while. <laughs> he was like, I don't know, you know, a lot of paint and a lot of people around here. It could be kind of messy and things like that. It's like, yeah, well, you, <laughs> you know, you got to have like stuff on the floor to like catch the paint and things. But yeah, there's like, there's a little, like these other mobile events I've seen that are kind of... um they're kind of popping up as like hybrid smoke and it's kind of like smoke and paint. It's kind of like sipping and painting. Yeah. I guess they right. probably do them at, uh, I'm not sure where they do them at, but maybe, you know, places like we're talking about lounges. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to see how that how that landscape really changes and how how the industry itself reacts. Because I imagine if you could purchase and consume from a consumption lounge that had it doubled as something else, that would probably impact dispensary sales um, pretty seriously. That maybe some dispensaries would start to switch into those kinds of models long term. But yeah, the jury's out, man. We're gonna we're gonna find out soon. <laughs> We'll have to, yeah, theorize on which way it'll uh, kind of go and different things. And there's always, you know, players with uh, deep pockets and things like that, you know, as different levels of legalization and standardization of some of these medicines come through on the federal arena, you know, bigger pharmaceutical players and things like that, you know, will always uh, try and come in and... Um, Pockets are getting deeper, huh? Probably have something to say about, you know, uh, different things in there. Because uh, there's a lot of big money now that's coming to the dispense. I use the dispensary world as kind of a loose term. But, I mean, when you're trading st stocks that are of a weed, weed stocks, um, nature on E-Trade, it's kind of a different, it's a different world than, uh, you know, probably when we grew up and things. I mean, I would have... Uh, I would have imagined the things would have happened, but we always think maybe it'll happen a little bit slower with bureaucracy. Oh, yeah. So within I our lifetime. I wouldn't have thought we'd have this conversation now, uh, you know, after having to make like parking lot deals and go to strange houses for a while and just all kinds of unsavory things growing up uh, <laughs> to, to consume versus now it's like, oh, you know, people make, people make a living off of this. It's a legit industry. Um, it's, it's awesome, man. I'm thankful for that, at least witnessing that piece of history and kind of change in the, the cultural zeitgeist. That's really a rare um, point, in, point in time and thing that you bring up. You know, you've got like the OGs and a lot of the people that were kind of uh, influencing the debut and the inauguration of everything. Like I met this uh, gentleman who uh, was the creator of the Granddaddy Perp strain. He was at this event called the Squash Offs, and it was um, just kind of an interesting lineage. He was uh, there with his two sons. They were going to compete with the strain and things like that. And then, Can you know, the next us. generations. Yeah, it'll be uh, in the next uh, one or two generations, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about now that's so, so much at the forefront, like all the all the legalization that's cascading down right now will be kind of behind us. So it's a really rare and unique thing to be able to kind of report on and chat about some of these uh, newer locations and things like that, that are uh, like Definitely. Missouri just uh, legalized and a few other places, just uh, Kentucky, I think was just. Right. right. And uh, many States are watching Kansas voted theirs down again and shout out to granddaddy perp. Thank you, Ken Estes, for the, the beauty of that cultivar. There are so many strains that cross or have a lineage that ties into GDP. It's, it's everywhere. It was really epic, yeah. He was um, there kind of uh, chatting, chatting with me. I chatted with his, uh, his two sons that were, uh, you know, bringing their stuff basically all the way there to enter it into this competition and things like that. And uh, Wow just being like a veteran of um, a time that's like, it'll be a time that'll be easily forgotten, you know, in the next 50 years, that'll be kind of my projection is that when we look back at some of this legalization and what it like really took for some of the first people to make it all happen. And some of the 
debts that they had to pay to society and you know to their families and stuff like that years lost maybe to uh to the legal system or just you know fighting different things along the way i think it'll be something to kind of hold up in a like in a legacy fashion um yeah it's gonna be um it, it will feel like that like a cultural time or like folks who witnessed you know like some of the high points in the 70s or the 60s i think that there will be that vibe that legacy era um, experience that has a lasting impact for you know the generation that that witnessed that i mean in modern modern kids and folks you know coming up in the industry now it's just unreal to imagine you could choose different cultivars like when you had to just call your guy um <laughs> but the yeah what you were mentioned about you know folks that had to pay a, a cost or a societal tax on on the cannabis progress you know especially this uh, Luke Scarmazzo uh, in California he served a 14-year prison sentence for running an above-the-board legal dispensary in about 2006 2007 I think it was wow. during that era where everyone was very unsure if the feds were going to crack down on state on state-run cannabis licenses and they did on a few of them unfortunately and he was in for a long time for doing something that now folks are, you know, jumping at the opportunity to do. You know, all these states are spinning up the same businesses. And um, luckily he was released here in, in February uh, without having to spend the remainder of his sentence. But, I mean, those are years that are um, not coming back and it's a, it's a hell of a sacrifice to pay. So I think that there are a lot of those legacy cats that, um, deserve the support um, kind of constantly from the industry and like, you know, deserve the, the respect there, you know, from consumers, even if there isn't a connection, uh, just to know that there were uh, sacrifices made along the way, right? Hmm. Absolutely. It can't be understated. And I think that's a lot of the ethos that has to be taken into account when we have the discussion about commodification and some of the you know big players with money that are trying to step in and then we have to kind of uh, honor the legacy of these people's lives and what it really uh, took to be there and just seeing you know this last month going to a few of these uh, couple conferences was sort of my first time really being exposed to some of the some of the more serious ones you know I've heard about MJ BizCon I missed it this year but hopefully next year and i've heard it's a uh, just kind of a hectic thing and just going to these yeah, conferences it'll be back <laughs> i mean these uh november you know these individuals yeah november it'll be that'll be a good time um it's kind of just uh it's impressive to see how so many folks are putting like their entire lives now like into the industry it's everything they have it's everything that they do and then yeah making a career out of it yeah Exactly. It's a, it's a passion. It's something that they are trying to do, even if they could maybe make more money elsewhere and things like that. And so it was really uh, inspiring to see some of the um, folks like Granddaddy Perp. And then I was out there with the Queen of Hash, Mila. She was uh, judging at the squash off and just kind of seeing like, it's like uh, Sir Isaac Newton says that he was able to see further because he, he stood on the shoulders of giants. And I feel like that's something that's got to be a story told within kind of the cannabis industry as we turn the page on, on some of the um, 
legacies out there, you know, as they move on to the next, the next chapters. Definitely, man. I think that was a very poignant way to wrap up the conversation too. I want to thank you for coming on the show today and sharing some of your wisdom uh, and insight here. I think there's so much more that we could discuss, so we might have to look at a, at a future episode as well. And in the meantime, where can our listeners find out more about you or connect with you and your projects? Oh, thanks so much again, man. Um, all my stuff's out on just um, www.etherarcade.com. And um, anybody's welcome to just chat with me on LinkedIn. I'm always open to any veterans and things like that. And uh, yeah, it means a lot being on the show, Rob, and being able to chat with you and um, talking with somebody of another uh, high level of intelligence as a ganjier and uh, got to push the ideas forward, you know, and uh, I think education is pretty paramount in that. So uh, I just really want to express my gratitude and say thanks for, you know, allowing me the chance to share some insight today and yeah, hope to chat some more. Hope to uh, keep the discussions going, man. Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show and our range of services, visit apt113.com. We offer cannabis operations consulting, agile product management, and connoisseurship services. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help.